All right. Thank you, Brother Bill. Thank you, Carr family. Appreciate uh, leading us in worship this morning. Sarah, it looks like uh, you might have to help me out here with the slides. Well, go ahead and dismiss the kids as I'm in my own little zone here. If you guys want to go to, down to Sunday school and to Sunday school, go right ahead. Sister Roberta's back there. Nursery. All right. And those of us that are staying upstairs, we're going to be turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And so we're back into Ecclesiastes, our series in Ecclesiastes. The last couple of weeks we've had um, a brother, Wayne, uh, filled in for me last week, and, and I appreciate that. I went to Boise and, and just had a, a pretty long week, so I'm just so grateful that, he, um, that God has sent him and uh, just able to ask someone within the church to be able to stand in and preach. It's, it's just an amazing gift so, and blessing. So thank you, Brother Wayne, for that. And then we had our baptism uh, the week prior, and so we, were, we discussed the, the verse that's on the wall there, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 5 there, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and, and what that really truly means, and, and then celebrated with Sierra, her baptism, after the service, and that was great. So um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Ecclesiastes, so I just want to remind you what Ecclesiastes is all about. This is in the Old Testament. This is written uh, by King Solomon. He's the son of King David. And he um, asked God, God for when um, God came to him and, and said, you know, what do you want? He, he asked for wisdom. And so we know Solomon has a lot of wisdom. And so Solomon has provided us through the inspiration of the Spirit of God um, these books in the Old Testament that we call them wisdom literature, right? So Proverbs is mainly written by, by Solomon, and it's, it's traditional wisdom. It's wisdom imparted from someone who's gone through life has walked with God, and he's trying to display for us wisdom under the inspiration of the Spirit, ultimately. And so Proverbs is pretty easy to, to follow along. It's traditional wisdom. But Ecclesiastes, Solomon uh, uses writing in a different way. He's writing from irony. He's writing um, from kind of just imagine like a, a critic, like a critical sage, a grumpy old man, right, who's been and he's just burned out on life. He's, he's jaded by this world, and uh, that's kind of how he's framing Ecclesiastes. He's, he's writing from a critical standpoint. And even though he has this wisdom, he's trying to demonstrate to us that if we view life and the purpose and meaning of life just with our senses, with our eyes and what we see around us and how we, people interact with one another, right? We arrive ultimately where, where Solomon is writing from and this, this idea of being cynical, and critical of life, and there's really no true meaning and purpose found in this world under the sun, just laboring. And if that's what this life is all about, laboring under the sun, then, then there's, it's just vanity. It's foolishness to try to find meaning and purpose in it. It's time to, trying to wrestle the wind. It's just you can struggle and try all you want, but it's, it's not fruitful. And so we know he's already mentioned to us his 
what he's going to conclude at the end of this letter, that unless we fear God, unless we walk with the purpose and understanding of what God is doing in his creation, then we truly do not have meaning and purpose in this life, that we will find ourselves cynical towards this life and towards others, um, just as Solomon is walking us through and portraying that to us in Ecclesiastes. So ultimately, it's the fear of God, recognizing that God has made this creation He has demonstrated such, and he has a meaning and purpose in his creation. And he's revealed to us, ultimately, what his meaning and and purpose is in this creation. And ultimately, we know we start from the foundation of what he's revealed to us in his special revelation, and that is to glorify himself, is to glorify God. All things were made by Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Colossians. All things were made by him and for him. It was for him, for his glory. We start with his glory. And in in that, as we live for that, in the fear of God, understanding His purpose, living out our life to glorify God in our lives, presenting our lives as living sacrifices, these are all things that I've mentioned as we've walked through these first seven chapters of Ecclesiastes. As we do that, that is when we find our true meaning and purpose. And what an important message that, that is today. Even today, even though this was written first or 10th century B.C., We live in a society that increasingly denies the existence of God and not only denies the existence, but is purposely going out and teaching this this denial of God and and all that is inexistent is just happened by chance and where there is no true meaning and purpose. That's what our children and this world and our society is ultimately teaching, that there is no true meaning and purpose, that we're all just a cosmic accident. And that's a lie. Straight from the pit of hell. All humans have been created in the image of God. All humans have purpose. And so even though this is such an old writing, how applicable it is for us today. In verse, or Ecclesiastes 7, 7, he kind of changes and begins to um, I kind of mentioned when I was preaching through Ecclesiastes 7, you have to imagine this, this old sage, right? Standing kind of like him right now, but in the midst of a, a group of men. And, and he's trying to impart wisdom to him. And so he begins to give these wise sayings that, again, where he's employing irony. And, and we kind of uh, work our way through those. And he, but he's trying to, now trying to exude wisdom to people. And chapter 8 is the same thing. He's trying to demonstrate what a wise person to do should, should do uh, in submitting to authority. To be wise in submission to authority. Those things that have been placed over us. And we've talked about the sovereignty of God. And that's what really tries, ties all this in at the end of this. Um, this is a difficult passage to, to, to preach through because it's ultimately submitting to a king is what Solomon is is portraying in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and here we are in America where we don't have a king, right? So we have, to, we have to try to glean the wisdom that he's imparting to these people and then try to apply it to our own walks and to our own life. And so that's what I'm going to be attempting to do through the Word of God today for us. So um, being wise and submitting to authority, and he begins Ecclesiastes chapter 8 by asking a question. Asking a question. In verse 1 he says, Who is like the wise person? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A person's wisdom brightens his face, and the sternness of his face is changed. And so he asks the question, 
what does a wise person look like? And who's the, who's the person, what does, he, what does it look like when they are able to interpret a matter? And he says, wisdom is best because, right, when a person has wisdom, it brightens his face. And, and for me, when I was studying through this, you know, I, when I am confronted with a problem as a pastor, I've, I've been uh, um, leading, by, by the grace of God, a pastor for, or being in a pastorate for uh, over three and a half years now, so uh, not as many firsts are occurring, but I still encounter firsts like, oh boy, how do I deal with this one, right? I, I don't know how to exactly deal with this. And so I get the bitter beer face, mm, you know? I don't know how to, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, I want to call a timeout. Let me get back to you on that, right? But a person that has gone through it and has lived through that uh, certain situation and then is presented with the problem to be able to, to give wisdom is, is like, hey, I've walked through this. I know, I know how God has solved me through this. Let me tell you how you should do this. And so wisdom has that ability. And so ultimately what Solomon is saying is it is good to have wisdom. Wisdom is good to be able to apply to the things, the trials and, and tribulations of this life, to be able to encounter them and know what to do and how to react. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we begin to see how Solomon was wise and demonstrating to us that traditional wisdom doesn't always uh, result in what wisdom would say it results in because we live in a fallen world. We live in a, in a human race that is corrupt by sin. And so traditional wisdom is best, and that's the things that we should do and look to God for guidance in those things and to be wise in everything that we encounter. But it doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to work out the way traditional wisdom works out. I provided the example of Proverbs where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, that's wise. That's, that's good for parents to train up their children in the way they should go, but it's not a didactic. It's not a promise from God. If you do this, I'll make sure this happens. No, it's tradition saying that if you train up your child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. And more times than most, that's true, but ultimately it comes down to their choice. That person, that child grows up to be, have their own opinions and their own matters, and they can choose to follow the wise way or they can choose to go the foolish way. And so although it's wise to do that, to train up our children in the, in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it still comes down to their own walk with God. And so many times, right, and we talked about um, how the Proverbs say, if you, if you walk in the righteous ways, you'll be rewarded. You have a fruitful life. And then we look around and we see the wicked prospering, right? And those that are righteous, not. It goes against what traditional wisdom says it should be. And this is why um, I think Ecclesiastes is great for us because it, it's kind of just presenting us with the realities, right? So it is good to walk in wisdom, to walk in God's wisdom, but it doesn't necessarily mean in the earthly sense, in the materialistic sense, that it's going gonna, it's gonna, to you know, pan out the way traditional wisdom says. And Ecclesiastes 8 um, gets to this as well. So he says it's good to be wise, right? It's good to know the interpretation of a matter. A person that has wisdom, his face, his countenance brightens because he knows what to do in a certain situation. The sternness of his face has changed. And then in verses 2 and 3, wisdom, and he's going to be speaking specifically in regards to wisdom and how to submit to a king or to authority. 
Verse 2, keep the commands, king's command because of your oath made before God. And so Solomon's wisdom to this group of people is that they would um, keep the king's command, that they would submit to the king's authority. And submit in such a way that you're not only as you submit to the king, you're actually submitting to, to God because we've talked about God's sovereignty. The king is the king because God has allowed him to be king. Right? So to keep the king's command is, the, is synonymous with keeping the oath made before God. Verse 3, do not be in a hurry to leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause since he will do whatever he wants. And so he's providing wisdom. If you come before the king, again, this is hard for us to grasp because we don't have a king, but if you come before a sovereign who has all control, his advice to us is don't be in a hurry to leave his presence. Um, right? When my kids come up and ask me something and they're nervous and they, they want to leave, you know, I know something's up, right? Something's going on. I'm like, hmm, I got to investigate this matter a little bit more. But at the same time, the other extreme is do not persist in a bad cause. Don't keep challenging the king to what he's decided. So don't be flipping about coming into the presence of the king, but don't stand up and go against his will since ultimately a king is sovereign and he will do whatever he wants. And that's what verse 4 talks about, the sovereignty of the king. Do not be in a hurry to leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause since he will do what he wants. For the king's word is authoritative and who can say to him, what are you doing? Whatever the king, the sovereign says is what is going to happen. No one can challenge him. Who can say to the king, what are you doing? You can't question the king. He's sovereign. He has ultimate totalitarian ruler uh, authority over you because he's, you're under him and his, his, his authority. And then traditional wisdom says that uh, protection, there is protection and submission to authority. So the traditional wisdom, again, traditional wisdom, if we weren't dealing with a humanity that has fallen and, and dealing in, corrupted, in corruption and defiled from sin, right, this would work out that we would ultimately, as we submit to a good and gracious king, right, we would find protection in those things. And that's what traditional wisdom says in verse 5. The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful, and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. So we should find protection as we submit to the person that God has placed over us in authority. But then he kind of begins to tell us that it's good for a wise person to, to also be, right, to be wise, to be using their senses, to understand right times to approach the king and not to approach the king. Uh, true wisdom ultimately is waiting for the right time to act in the place and in, in interacting with the government or the authority that's placed over us. Verse 6 says, For every activity, there is a right time and procedure, even though a person's troubles are heavy on him. So his wisdom given to us is that we should wait for the right time to do things, right? It's a wise person. So to, to give you an example, as I was studying this out this week, when I go to work and I... I need, to, I need another employee, or maybe I, I want to raise, 
right? I, I'm getting, I'm building up an argument in my head to go to my boss to be able to, to demonstrate to, to them the need to, to hire another employee and all those things. But I also, at the same time, subconsciously, and I don't know if this is wrong or right, you guys can tell me, but I wait, right? How, 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 how's his mood? How's his countenance? If he's in a bad mood, I'm not going to ask him, right? I want to wait till he's in a, his countenance is good and Maybe I've had a couple of boys instead of not good boys, you know. And then I'll ask him. I'm, I'm trying to be wise. I'm trying to understand where he's at before I ask him for things. And I think that's what Solomon is pointing to. For every activity, there's a right time and procedure. There are times to approach the king. In our, in our context, there are times to, you know, we have the ability to vote and we have... Um, a great privilege to be able to be much more um, involved in our government and who God has placed over us, we have uh, the opportunity to speak into that. And so a wise person understands those things and seeks those things out to, to, to the, for the activities that would help produce what they desire to see in their, in their land. For every activity, there's a right time and procedure. But then again... Here's the cynical Solomon coming out in verse 8, right? Applying this traditional wisdom doesn't guarantee success in a fallen world, right? Verse 7, yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? So here comes cynical Solomon. You can, you can do this. You can be wise in how you approach the king and try to determine the time to do that. And you should uh, expect protection as you submit yourself to the king. But ultimately, he says, who knows what will happen? Because who can tell what will happen? He's like, ultimately, we just don't know. It's wise to do that, but it's ultimately up to the king. And no one's going to know what the king's ultimately going to decide. So traditional wisdom can fail us in this fallen world yet again. Verse 8, no one has authority over the wind to restrain it. Right? We, we want to control things. We want to control our future. He's pointing out the, the frustration that we often encounter that we ultimately can't control what happens. Our spirit, sphere of influence is only so big. No one has the authority of the wind to restrain it. There is no authority over the day of death. Ultimately, he keeps coming back to this idea of no matter rich or poor, wise or unwise, we're all faced with the reality that no matter what we do and how long, how hard we labor under the sun, we're all presented with the same thing. We all just die. Right? And, and we don't have a, a control over the day of our death. Now, as Christians and understanding God's revelation, and we've gone through this, we know God has determined our day of death. But under the sun, with our just our senses, as Solomon's trying to keep us, in, is our epistemology, our our paradigm and how we look at life, he's trying to say, look, if you just have your understanding based on what your, your senses are, your, what you're seeing with your eyes and what you're, what you're observing around you, right? We, we have no control over those things. I remember my dad, he was an avid runner. He'd hiked every weekend. He ate healthy. You know, he had his banana in the morning and he just was on this regimen, but yet, right? He was a a plumber and inhaled asbestos when he was younger and as healthy as he was, right? He got cancer and died from it. He had no control. As much as he tried to, to, to live a life that 
he could go into old age, right? He had no ultimate control over the day of his death. And that's all of us, all, all of us are facing that. Cynical Solomon goes on to say, no one is discharged during the battle as much as we want to escape from the trials and tribulations of this life. We're not, there's no way of escape, right? I went to Montana for a, a getaway and I kept telling myself, you know, the, in the back of my mind, boy, it'd be so great just to go up and just buy, sell everything and buy a cabin up in the mountains on Montana and just, and just be a hermit and just live by, by myself and be delivered from all the trials and tribulations. But the only problem is, is I would be there, right? And my corrupt heart. There's no being discharged from this battle of life that we have. And, and, and the other option is to, well, if, we, if there is no purpose, if there is no meaning, we should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so we just um, throw ourselves at wickedness and, and um, debauchery that uh, Solomon had talked about in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where he's just trying to find fulfillment and anything and everything that could please him that this world has to offer. And he, he, he found that to be vain and futile as well. And so those that practice wickedness and wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape, right? We're still faced with this idea that life under the sun without the purpose and meaning of God is vain and futile. So Solomon's conclusion in verse 9 is ultimately this. He says, Obey, submit to the king as if you were submitting to God. Obey him, and, and traditional wisdom says you'll be protected. But then he says, but ultimately, who, who really knows? And that's ultimately because Solomon, as a king himself, understands that absolute power corrupts absolutely. A sovereign, given that kind of control, as a man with a, uh, with a corrupt heart, will ultimately, right, to have that absolute power ultimately will corrupt that person absolutely. It doesn't matter his intentions, and he's talked about this in previous chapters of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 about a king who starts off with the right meanings and intentions and asking for wisdom, assumes the power, and then gets old, and, and he just wants to control because he has the power, and he's, just, he's not listening to anybody anymore because he just, he's feeding on that power, and he becomes isolated and ultimately useless. Absolute power corrupts absolutely is what he concludes in verse 9. All this I have seen applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun. Again, so he's given us his paradigm, his lens in which he's viewing this. What he's observing, what he's observing in his own heart, I believe, at a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. So the person who has the authority over another is always ultimately going to be to that person's harm those who have the ability to deliver the oppressed and the poor, right, are the ones oppressing. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, but yet God commands us to submit to authority. And again, Solomon's context is a king, a sovereign, and that's not our context for today, so hopefully I've um, tried to expouse what Solomon has given us as faithfully as I can, but now I'm, I'm attempting to apply this into our context today. And so maybe the question in the back of everyone's mind, since we don't have a king, what are we to do? 
Are we to submit to authority as well? And the New Testament certainly talks about that. So if you'd like to turn to Romans 13, that's the most exhaustive passage of Scripture that talks about submitting ourselves to authority, the government authority. The Cliff Note version is that God, in his revelation, he's, he's established institutions, places of authority. The first one is family. The husband and wife shall be one, and they, they are to, commanded to uh, be fruitful and multiply. And so the family unit is this picture of, in God's creation, the, the chief cornerstone the, the, the right, made in God's image. We're representatives of God here on earth, and the family unit is the unit that is supposed to demonstrate the, what God truly is, right? Our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God yet distinct, distinctly three persons. And we believe that because that's what's been revealed to us. And they've always existed co-equal, co-eternally, but in perfect love and harmony with one another. And that's hard for us to grasp, right? Because we, we, we don't. But that's what the family was intended to do, to be, right? The husband and the wife were to be one. And they were to have children. And they, the, the family unit was a means in which God's glory could be reflected in unity and community as God, our God is. Unity in community. He's also established government as we'll see in Romans 13, as a means, as his arm to, to suppress evil and to uphold righteousness and goodness. And he's also established his church as a sense, as an institution. We are, right, the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, church. Christ is our head, but we are his representatives on earth. We are here, right, to be his ambassadors, to be his hands and feet. And they're distinct institutions. And Romans 13 speaks to this sphere of, of authority that God has placed in government specifically. And Jesus even talked about it. In Mark 12, the religious leaders of the time were trying to trip him up, trying to get him to say something that they could accuse him and get him you know, convicted because Jesus was obviously, as God in the flesh, turning the world upside down healing people on the Sabbath, all these things that were, weren't supposed to happen. So they're trying to trip him up, and they asked him this question about ta- or taxing, taxation, and stuff like that. And his response in Mark 12 to these religious, religious leaders were, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So even Jesus said, you need to submit in the area of authority of government to what's, what's, what are Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But to God, the things that are God's. And they're talking about a token or um, a coin that had the image of Caesar on it. And they were utterly amazed at him, right? Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then in Romans 13, Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us that we are to submit to the governing authorities placed over us because ultimately we know God is sovereign and in control. And he, he's asked us to submit to those things. So Christians are not supposed to be a band of people that are anarchists. And we're going to do our own thing because you know, we are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us. And that's what Paul says in Romans 13. That everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. 
And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the, does not carry the sword for no reason. So we're seeing that God uses government prescriptively as a means to carry out his justice. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Verse 6, and for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls that you owe tolls, respect to those who you owe respect, and honor to those you you honor, you owe honor. So from the inspired word of God, from the Apostle Paul, explicitly tells the church that we are submit and we are to be good citizens, right? We are to be the best citizens of whatever government God has placed over us. And we're to pay our taxes, unfortunately, right? Be a good citizen and pay your taxes is what God's calling us to do. But I'm sure... In the back of everyone's mind is the question, submit always? Right? Do we always submit to the government? And I think, the, and I just, I, I need to do a better job at citing my sources, right? So um, COVID was a really tough in 2020 for the church, right? It's still it's bringing divisiveness to the church, um, for the pastors, it, it's, it's just been so rough. I, we had a, just to give you an example, it's not, not personal. We had a, a, a pastor's meeting in April of this year. A guy came out from the South and the pastor was there and he's like, man, when the government did the mandate where that we had to wear masks, even in church, you know, I got a text that morning from my family that says, if anyone's wearing a mask, if you're making people wear masks, we're not coming, we're leaving the church and we're not coming back. So he's like, oh, great. So he goes, drives to church, he opens up his computer, pops up as an email, and then he has a, um, another family email him, say, if anyone doesn't have masks, we're leaving the church and we're not coming back. And he's like, and I'm supposed to be trying to, you know, unify the body here. And it's divisive. It's not black and white. It's, it's gray, right? And so as a pastor, I was struggling with these same things. And, you know, I so again, wisdom. And the, the one thing I'm taking away from COVID is that even the, the pastors that have been around for 30 or 40 years saying COVID season was the hardest season of ministry in their, in their, in their entire ministry. So I'm like, okay, good, right? They didn't know what to do either. Or, you know, or you're, we're, we're, right, we're trying to obey God but yet, and provide unity, but still hold to the command that we are not to neglect the assembly of ourselves together. How do we do that? And so I begin to look outside and go to look to men that um, I've trusted in, that God has used in my past to, to bring me out of uh, false understandings of Scripture. My, the president of my Bible college, he was in California, and they were really strict, and they were finding his church every Sunday, but he says, we will not allow the government the right to dictate 
what the church institution does. They, he saw it very distinct, clear uh, of the, between the two institutions, government and church. And the First Amendment says, right, we're not to be prohibited. And so he had a strong stand that he was going to allow his people to come. And if they wanted to wear a mask, fine. But if they didn't, that's fine too. And so there, there's that side of it. And then I looked to my pastor. I didn't go to his church, so I was going to a pa- the man I dearly love who loves the word. And he's saying, no, man, Romans 13 says we need to submit to authority. And, and so we're going to submit to the government authority in this. And so I'm like, right, well, I don't know where to go. And so what, I, what happens normally when that, those, those things happen is like, like, all right, I'm not listening to anybody. I just want to know what Scripture says. And the scriptures say that the Spirit, right, is in us and will guide us into all truth. And, uh, and so I, that's, what, you know, that's what I just, that's what I default to when I'm, when, I, when I'm confused and I don't want to do. I just want to know what the Word says. And I, I want the Spirit to illuminate me to those truths. And so I, you know, I, I reached out to, not reached out, but I, I watched a sermon from James White from the Alpha Omega Ministries. He, what I love about Jim, uh, Dr. White is that he, he's all about the Word. He doesn't want to give you opinion. He just, he dissects the scripture and parses it for you. And so he had a, uh, his, um, <clears throat> in his uh, radio program, he had a, a episode on Romans 13. And so he, he just parsed the, the, you know, the, the scripture to me and he opened my eyes to, to what I think the key verses are to submit to government authority, and that's in verses 3 and 4, 8 and 9. So let's just look at those real quick. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, or your translation might say evil. That's probably the better translation. Rulers are not a terror to the ones that are doing good, but they're a terror to the ones doing evil. Paul says, do you want to be unafraid? And you have to understand the context that Paul's writing this is Nero is Caesar at this point. Nero was a very bad guy. And, right? So he, he wasn't writing in a vacuum. He says, do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is, good, it is God's servant for your good. So he's de- defining for us the key terms. Government is God's hand for those that are doing evil, he will punish them. God will use the government to punish them, but they'll uphold those that are doing good. And so he said, if you don't want to be afraid of the government authority, do what is good and not what is wrong. Right? In verse 4, we see that again. For it's God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So the question is, what do we define as good and what do we define as evil? How do we define those words? Is what good, is what is good, uh, what society thinks is good at the moment? Is what is evil, what society thinks, or maybe the government thinks is good at the moment? What do we say as Christians? God has defined what is good and what is evil. Paul goes on in Romans 13 to base all of his argumentation in Romans 13 off of this, God's law. He says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he goes on to, to summarize God's law and the, the Ten Commandments. The commandments do, do not commit adultery, do not murder, 
Do not steal, do not covet. And the other commandment are summed up by the, this command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's basing what is good and what is bad off of what is evil or off of God's law. Because we know God is the true sovereign. In him there is no corruption. And he has established his law as, his, as the means, right, to demonstrate his holiness and his righteousness and what is good and what is evil. And that does not change. The scriptures declare that God is not, there's no variable or shadowness of turning in Hebrews. God doesn't change. He's immutable. What is good and what is evil doesn't change from day to day or what the society thinks at the time. What God has said is good is good, and what God has said is evil is evil. And we as Christians are to submit to the ultimate sovereign in that regard. Right? Jesus himself said for I, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. God has given us his word to give us an absolute truth of what is true and what is good and what is evil. And as his followers, we are to not to bow down to societal pressures because of those things. So the question ultimately comes to, so what are we to do when governing authorities flip-flop those things? When governing authority promotes what is evil and punishes what is good according to God's standard. When the government says what God says is good is evil. And what God says is evil is now good. That's the crux of the matter. And Scripture speaks to that. We are sub- to submit to the authority that is God has placed over us. And we see countless times in, in the Bible where God's people, right, submitted to the, the things, uh, the, the authority that God had placed over them. Daniel is the, the recount of God's people who had been taken captivity from Jerusalem and went into Babylon, right? A king, an army, a wicked uh, society came and took God's people. And we know from the Old Testament that that was God's form of judging his people, God allowed that to happen as a form of judgment for God's people who were stiff-necked and turned away from him. And Daniel, the book of Daniel, records Daniel's um, submission to the Babylonian authority. And Daniel um, did that for God's glory. And as you follow Daniel's journey in Daniel the book of Daniel, will see that he rose to power, that he was able to interpret James because God had given him favor and, and the ability to do so. And so he was in a, in a even though he was uh, uh, um, in a land that, you know, he w- was forced to go to, he had rose to power. And the uh, local leaders were jealous over Daniel. And so they convinced the king to to sign a decree that said no person is allowed to pray to any other god except to pray to the 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 king of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar and they did that because they knew Daniel prayed to his god every day and so they they kind of coerced the king into signing this decree and so when Daniel found out about it we, as you follow the story in Daniel, we'll see that Daniel didn't go into his prayer closet and secretly began to pray. Oh no, right? What he did is he went into his apartment 
And he flew open the windows, and he prayed aloud every day. He was submissive to the authority that God had placed under him until he got to the point where the governing authority was telling him to do something that God had, you know, not to do something that God had commanded to. And then he chose God's way over the government's way. And we see that time and time again. I have many examples for that, but for the sake of time, I just want to provide you a New Testament example. Peter, um, Acts chapter 5, Christ has already ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Spirit has come upon the, the church and, and dwelt the, the believers. Thousands are getting saved, just a miraculous move, movement of God. Peter's out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Right, the, They get hauled in front of the, the leaders, the, the governing authorities, and they're, they're told, don't preach this Jesus anymore. But what do they do? They go right back out and they begin to proclaim the gospel. And so they get hauled back in and getting ready to get, uh, well, actually they got, were jailed. The Spirit of the Lord in Acts chapter 5 says, uh, came and unlocked the doors for them. And they went back out, and instead of hiding, going, well, that was a close call. No, they begin to proclaim Jesus again. So they get hauled back in to the Sanhedrin, the governing authority at the time. And this is what they said. Don't, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And this is Peter's response. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people or man. And so we see submission to authority until it comes to the point where we choose, have to choose between what God has commanded versus what the governing authority says. And then we obey God rather than man. Because our God is the ultimate sovereign. He is the one sovereign that has no corruption. We obey him as his people. But we also, as we see in the lives of the apostles and church history for a couple of thousand years now, we also succeed to the fact that the governing people, when they begin to espouse what is evil is good and good versus is evil, there's a consequence to pay for that. Church history is full of people who obeyed God rather than people and paid dearly their lives, and not just quick deaths, painful suffering for following what God has done. Um, <clears throat> Watch Pastor White or Dr. White's uh, sermon on you know, YouTube. It just like loads another, another video in right after that one. You know, try to keep you hooked in type of deal. But it was uh, Jeff Durbin. He's a, church, uh, a pastor down in Arizona. He was speaking on Romans 13 as well. So I was watching his thing, and he, he provided some examples. He was in Scotland, and in this town that's just beautiful. He's in the Starbucks, and he just couldn't, just couldn't uh, believe the view that he had in the Starbucks of the castles and all that stuff. And then he began to see the history of in the Reformation when people who all they had to do was say, um, the king is the leader over the church, the king of England. All they had to do was say that, and they'd be left free. But there's people who said, no, the king of England is not head over the church. Christ Jesus is head over the church. They refused to say it, and they spent months out in the Scotland winter naked, 
starving to death and freezing to death. Day by day, slowly being tortured. All they had to do was say, the king is head over the church. And they refused. And so I hope you all are coming to that point where I came to in our future. I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But where are you? Where are you in the, in the gray? Right? I hate gray. I want black and white. Good, evil. Let's choose good. But there sure is a lot of gray going on. Sarah, a couple months ago, I guess it was, on a Saturday night service, shared her testimony about you know, struggling, her family's out here, whole complete different culture, all those things. And they went to the Tetons and the, uh, it was during fire season, so the smoke was blocking the, the view, right? And she, at first she's like, oh man, can't see. But she's like, you know, she shared with us where she, before they began to sing and she said, you know, but as I focused, I, I saw the mountains. And even though I couldn't see them well, I, I knew that they were there and I could, I could see them through the smoke. And she said, you know, that's, that's kind of how God is sometimes. All right, there's a lot of gray a lot of smoke. False teachings the same way. I'm not worried about the Satanist. We know where they stand. I'm worried about the person who believes a little bit of a truth and a little bit of untruth, and that's all cobbled together and makes gray. And right, I hate the gray. But as Sarah reminded us that night, God is still there. And what I like about that illustration is that her. Sarah's focus. She chose to focus on something. She could have focused on the gray and the smoke. Said, oh, this is terrible. Our whole trip's ruined. Look at all this smoke around us. But she chose to focus on the mountains that she could barely see. And I think that's what it is with our walk with God in these times of gray. What is our focus on? Is it all the junk and the gray? Or is it on God and his word that we know stands true? even when we can't see it clearly, our focus must remain on God. We should obey God rather than people. In the days to come, where where will we be? I'm reminded of Psalm 1 who says the person that clings to the word is like a, a, a tree that's firmly planted with roots that grows down deep down and right by a river. The person that's not in the word is, is like a tree that is in the, in the dry desert with no source of nutrient. And then the storm comes. What tree gets blown away and what tree withstands the test and the trial? We have, God has given us his word, his church for us to fellowship and to sharpen one another and, and the, the ability to pray to him. And, and these are the things as Christ's people, God's people that we need to be doing so we will stand firm that our focus will remain on God in the times to come and the trials to come when governments begin to say what God says is good is evil. What God says is evil is actually good. Where will we stand? I pray we stand firm and keep our focus on God. And this is the God that Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 5 here. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler 
a sovereign king, the king of kings, the king with no ill will, with no corruption, that this king is also our savior. This king came to seek and to save us by dying for us on the tree. To be able to have repentance, to give repentance, this turning from our own ways and means and and giving repentance to Israel specifically, he's saying, and forgiveness of sins, that is where we find reconciliation with our God and eternal hope that is to come. Peter says we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. He's boldly standing before the governing authority and saying, well, now that I have your attention, let me tell you about Jesus, knowing full well that it could have ended his life. We are his witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. God has given to those who obey him. I pray that is you this morning. I pray um, that the Spirit would illuminate you into the truth that the majority of Christian history is a history of people who stand for the things of God and not the things of man and are persecuted because of it. I pray it's not the case for us, but that's the majority. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And that's where we are. I know it's not the most encouraging sermon, but that's the reality of where we're at. It's the reality of what our society is changing. And we need to be firm and stand firm for the things of God as his ambassadors, as his institution of the church, his representation here on earth, that we stand for his ways, not the ways of society. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to open up your word, to be reminded, Father, that even though this life is... uh, can be cynical and so gray and um, just trials and persecutions and all these things that we see that we deal with even today on our daily basis, God. We're so grateful to know that you are in control. You are indeed the sovereign. We're so grateful that you provided a way for us to be reconciled to you through Jesus. We're grateful that you've given us the spirit to empower us to live the life that you've called us to, to be ambassadors for your sake and not for the sake of Um, the world. Lord, we just ask that you empower us to live that calling that you've called us to that would be your light and your presence in this earth that others may come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, Lord, that you would use us in that regard before it's too late. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.